Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It's the 4th of July weekend, 2017. My friends and family in my native land are going about the usual rituals, but by rote, not with any great joy. America is not a happy place. It is splitting apart rhetorically, and if only a fraction of the threats posted in my social networks are acted on, it will split apart in other ways. I'm not being emotional. I'm not overreacting. I've covered civil wars. I know that extremely violent rhetoric amplified by broadcast media always precedes violent acts. Nations, particularly multi-ethnic nations like the U.S., can disintegrate in months with a concentrated campaign of angry words against a particular group in the society. Yugoslavia, Rwanda, took less than six months to foment civil war. This 4th of July, I'm thinking of togetherness, though. Specifically, the often quoted, probably apocryphal statement of Benjamin Franklin as the assembled leaders of the independence movement stepped forward on that hot July day in 1776 to sign that wonderful statement on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We must, indeed, all hang together, or we most assuredly shall all hang separately. No trade union activist or Marxist revolutionary has ever defined the necessity of solidarity so elegantly. Franklin may or may not have said that, but he had been expressing the thought regularly in the years before the rebellion. Our only safety is the firmest union, he wrote in 1775, and keeping strict faith with each other. Hanging together, keeping the faith, solidarity, That's what I'm thinking about this July 4th. It is the absence of solidarity in recent years that has led to America's current agonies. When our new epoch began with such savageness a decade ago, it was not possible to see what was unique about it. As time has passed, it is clear the crash in 2008 was not your garden-variety economic contraction, which would be followed as day follows night by a return to economic good times. In 2008, facing the never-ending deadline of the 24-7 news cycle, pundits and policymakers all looked back to the Great Depression to understand what might happen next in America and Britain. Remember all the talk about reviving WPA-style infrastructure programs as a way to help America avoid another Great Depression? The WPA, the Works Progress Administration, had been a New Deal government program to get people employed again. From the iconic Griffith Park Observatory in Los Angeles to the Central Park Zoo in New York and thousands of new highway miles in between, people were put to work on WPA projects. Other federally funded infrastructure projects included the Grand Coulee and Hoover Dams and the Lincoln Tunnel. With unemployment spiking in 2008, you can see the appeal of returning to those thrilling days of yesteryear. No one gave any consideration to the fact that in contemporary America's service-based economy, most of those losing their jobs, men and women, had never done a day's manual labor in their lives, and so were unlikely to have the skills or physical strength required to be re-riveting bridges over the Mississippi or building a new Hoover Dam. Everybody has images burned into their memory of the Depression, even if they can't name the photographers who took those pictures. In 2008, photojournalists went out seeking to recreate those classic images of sharecroppers and malnourished children. 
They switched on their black and white filters, but did not find images that recalled Dorothea Lange and Walker Evans. Poverty in America today is not as photogenic as it was when Evans lived with Alabama's rural poor. Malnourishment leads to obesity now, not the lean, careworn, saintly faces Lang immortalized. When soup lines failed to materialize and Wall Street traders didn't jump out of windows and thousands of hobos didn't start riding the rails, the press decided things really weren't so bad. But they were. They were bad in a way that was different to the 1930s. We did not suffer another Great Depression, but for a majority in America and Britain, life is being lived in a perpetual downturn. Because when it comes to creating jobs, steady, well-paid, full-time employment, the Anglo-American model of raw free market capitalism has run out of road. The employment statistics show almost full employment in the U.S., but only by counting any form of paid work during the course of a week can you get to that statistic of full employment. One hour or ten or twenty is the same as a forty-hour week for the purposes of the monthly employment report. That seems a little bit of a cheat to me. Another difference between today's world of perpetual downturn and the Great Depression is the death of solidarity. I'm not talking about the kind of solidarity sung about in old union songs or shouted for in Clifford Odette's Waiting for Lefty or the kind of solidarity we saw in the last few days when New York Times reporters staged a brief walkout in support of the paper's copy editors. Management wants to cut their numbers in half. Anyway, it's good there's some of the old union solidarity still around. But I'm talking about something different, the kind of human solidarity on display in catastrophic episodes in history where one person risks their own personal security to help another. No society survives a catastrophe without a show of this human solidarity. And the permanent downturn is a catastrophe for those who have lost their full-time jobs or have had to move on from their hometowns and families because of the collapse of the local economy. Believe me, I know. This solidarity is something I heard about as a reporter covering conflicts, like the story of the Bosnian Serb peasant who went against her own community and sheltered her Muslim neighbors from thugs and then helped them escape to safety in Sarajevo. It is something I have heard about as a Jew, like the story of a woman I know. At Auschwitz, she worked in the kitchens and gave extra rations of food to another woman who was very ill. She was severely punished for giving away that extra nourishment. Decades later, at a Holocaust survivor's event in Israel, this brave woman heard her name being called out in the crowd. The woman she had fed had survived also. There is the solidarity I heard about in my own family. During the Great Depression, my grandfather was a dentist with a modest practice in the Bronx. His sister's husband couldn't find a job. Her sons were his own son's age. On Fridays, when he gave my father and uncle their allowance, he gave his nephews an allowance as well, and always more than my father got. Why? my father asked once. Because they have nothing, was my grandfather's response. My grandfather eventually fronted his sister's family the money to start over again in California, where they were able to rebuild their lives. How much of that reaching out beyond charity is there in America today? Well, there's plenty of concern. 
Concern is the curse of liberalism. Concern is plentiful in liberal America, but how much solidarity? Solidarity as I've just described it, where you risk your own life or livelihood for someone else, a stranger even. Thousands of individual acts of solidarity grow into a social norm. The terrible rent in our social fabric cannot be repaired without it. And solidarity isn't just a social thing. Leaders in our societies need to think in terms of hanging together rather than separately as well. In early 2009, I went to Hamburg, Germany to report on the recession. The docks, the main business of the city, were empty. Global trade had come to a screeching halt, and it wasn't clear when the great container ships would move again. Yet the worst of the downturn was mitigated because people were kept at work. Businesses, banks, local government and unions worked together to find a way to keep people employed, even when there was no real work to be done. Jobs were shared. Loans were available to keep enterprises open. To achieve this, bankers and managers were willing to miss quarterly profit targets and forego their bonuses. The politicians in charge of local governments were willing to risk the wrath of the electorate by taking on debt. Union members accepted fewer hours of work. The society, how can I say this without irony, was united. When the global economy began to rebound, Germany was ready to take advantage of it. Its workforce was in place and motivated. In that same period of time, what happened in America? We entered a phase of preemptive downsizing. When the banks tottered and the press filled up with the world is coming to an end stories, people began to be laid off even from profitable enterprises. Managers had to meet quarterly profit targets, and if the only way to do so was throw people out of work, tough. Another measure of employment we don't know. How does the precariousness of American work life affect employees' motivation? Where no loyalty is offered, how much loyalty does a worker give back? America remains a phenomenally rich country. It must be if it can afford to squander the experience of millions of workers over 50 and frustrate the potential of those just entering the world of work. A whole section of American society has been cast adrift, like one of those massive chunks of Antarctica that are breaking off with increasing frequency. A significant minority of people under 25 and over 55 have been removed for the foreseeable future from the world of full-time paid employment, which, let's face it, even if the press and too many top academics won't, is the only kind that counts. And so we arrive at the 4th of July, 2017. We are hanging separately, at least on the liberal side of the equation. I'm not sure about the other side. My occasional reporting journeys through the South and Midwest over the last 25 years have taught me that despite their wonky conflation of politics and theology, evangelical churches provide their communities with a sense of being together. They're a source of shared sacrifice in places that are suffering from the perpetual downturn, which may explain why the evangelical movement remains the rock-solid pillar of Donald Trump's support. 35% support on this July 4th weekend. Which makes me think again of Bosnia, Rwanda, and Northern Ireland. Civil war is a minority activity. I've often wondered what the critical mass is that takes it out of the realm of rhetoric on the radio to action. But that will be the subject of another FRDH podcast.
that's all for this one. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, please go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Happy Fourth!